Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So hello there and welcome back to a brand new DNF1 F1 podcast, the show where we talk all of the latest news, gossip and events in the world of Formula One and we relay that back to you for your listening or viewing pleasure, depending of course on which platform you choose to follow us on. And guys, this is the second part episode of our F1 launch special where we look at all of the brand new cars that have broken cover in this launch period of the F1 season and we'll talk about some of the intricate details that we have enjoyed on these new cars and perhaps a hint or so on which team seems to have got it right and perhaps which of those that have some catching up to do. Of course, not to mention, we're going to be going through every single team that we go through in this second part as we did in the first part with one key area in particular that we think that they will need to improve as well. And of course, we're going to be talking about some of the news that has been doing the round momentarily as well, because following on from what we talked about in the last episode, our first part, which of course I'll leave a card to for those of you who haven't heard it yet, there was a lot going on with the FIA, most notably some updates given what was going to be happening uh, with the FIA regarding Michael Massey's position as the race director of Formula One, along with a few other changes as well. Joining me on this episode, as always, my co-host Lee Wallington, joining us for this episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Lee, first of all, how are you doing? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm looking forward to getting into today's uh, set of cars. Just means we're getting forever closer to the beginning of the season, which is just brilliant <laughs> yeah i certainly cannot wait of course at the time of recording this episode some of the teams will be doing their final filming day shake-ups before the first pre-season session as f1 are calling it um happening from wednesday the 23rd of february up until friday the 25th it's not an official f1 test there's going to be no live timings no broadcasting not even a photo uh, from an official f1 source we may get the occasional drone trying to flow, fly over the catalonia circuit in barcelona to try and get a cheeky pick or two as we may have already seen on social media from some of the people outside the circuit trying to have a little sneaky look in to see what cars are going around the track. But as far as we are concerned, it is not an official F1 test. So any sense of times or details that we get from the F1 teams will either come from themselves, which is unlikely as well. Um, and they're not really going to matter for anything, as as testing is, to be honest. It's just going to be a pre-test shakedown for three days, basically just to get all the F1 teams running through their paces and make sure that the electronics are good, the engines are fine, the cars run as we're expecting them to for the real 
pre-season test in Bahrain a few weeks afterwards. I think, Adam, sorry to interrupt to that, the Formula 1 will be doing daily summaries at the end of each day. Oh, they are? Um, oh, well, that's good. Um, from what I read. Um, okay. Not too sure on that, but we'll find out um, tomorrow is the day of recording, the first day, but I do believe. Oh, well, that's good, actually, because... Um, end of day summaries. Yeah, because uh, I wasn't sure they were going to be doing even that, because for me, I mean, that's great if they do, something to have a look into and have a read through, but uh, I'm not sure how beneficial that's going to be, because if they're not going to publish any details, then, you know, what is the point of the summary, really? Just everyone... X, amount, X card did X amount of laps, X card it did x amount of that so there you go there's your summary <laughs> yeah pretty much mercedes was sandbagging as always ferrari looked fast and then bahrain comes around and it's like oh yeah where's that pace gone alfa romeo looks surprisingly the fastest team of the lot and yet everyone forgot to take into account the fact that they ran with literally no fuel in their car um so yeah you know you can make up your own conclusions whatever you want ladies and gentlemen it's totally up to you have some fun with it and uh yeah if lee if what lee says is true that would be it's better than nothing i suppose but um you're really clutching at straws, I suppose, at this point. I think we're just yeah. so starved of F1 action, even after the controversial finish to last season. I think we're all at this point now, Lee, where I think we're just dying to get back to it. Um, yeah. I, I can't wait to see these F1 cars again. I mean, they look fantastic, I must say. Um, I mean, we're going to get into this a little bit later on, but I must admit, some of these F1 cars, as a cohort, they definitely look the best that I think I've seen in almost 20 years, maybe longer than that. You know, oh, some yeah, of these cars. I completely agree. I mean, I messaged you, um, I think it was last week, about these new cars. The days of the Antietam, those are probably the ugliest cars that were ever made. They have come a long way in the, the regulations to actually design a good-looking car compared to uh, how they hoped the 2014 rigs went with what they thought was going to be a good-looking car. <laughs> it really wasn't. Yeah, no, they were absolutely dreadful. I mean, some of them were hilarious. I always think back to the uh, 2014 Caterham um, and the Toro Rosso. I mean, for those of you, it's a quick Google search, but the memes just literally write themselves at that point. I'm not going to repeat that on the show for obvious reasons, um, just because of what the innuendos might infer. But uh, yeah, let's get on with this episode of the podcast. And as I said, guys, if you haven't checked out part one where we looked at the mclaren the new Haas, which of course had some recent photos which are completely different to the renders as well so take from that what you want uh, also the aston martin the alpha towery and uh unless i'm mistaken who else did we look at lee it was um the red bull or yeah apparently the red bull yeah. we looked at a red bull livery we didn't really get to see any of the car and as far as i'm aware other than images that are like a 144 pixel quality always seems to be the way on that when it comes to those kind of uh, sneaky, uh, cheeky photos that you see on social media. We can't really get an, uh, one way in or the other on to what this Red Bull's going to look like. Um, it really does intrigue me because this is one car that I really want to have a look at. I'm sure a lot of people will probably agree as well. So we'll just have to wait a little bit longer to see what that Red Bull's going to look like. But uh, already a few rumours going through the paddock about Red Bull going a comp- different direction to some of the other teams or perhaps what was expected of them. But yeah, of course, if you haven't seen that one, I'll leave a link to that one. Make sure to check that out. In this part two, we're going to be looking at the other teams, as I said already, Alfa Romeo, Williams, Ferrari, Mercedes, and Alpine. But first, let's get into the uh, breaking developments, which broke late last week. So we are a little bit uh, behind on this one, uh, owing to our schedules. But the FIA 
Following the meeting that they had last week with the likes of Toto Wolf and Christian Horner, a few other team bosses were in attendance as well. And we were hoping to kind of get a, a conclusion or certain actions that were going to be followed after the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix controversy. Uh, the new FIA president, Mohammed bin Salayam, he came forward. He, he didn't have any direct actions at that time, but he said certain actions were agreed in principle and they were going to be announced to the F1 community in the next few days. Following this up, he has done so. He has come through on his word uh, with the following actions. And basically, it's the one big action that I think we all expected. Michael Massey has now been removed as the Formula One race director, or the FIA race director, I should say. He's now going to be redeployed in a different uh, department or a different role within the FIA. But this was the big one that we were expecting following the fallout from the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix controversy. Lee, I've got to come to you on this one straight away. How surprised are you that this news is broken that Michael Massey will no longer be the FIA race director involved in Formula One? Um, and I suppose there's an additional question, probably one I've asked you a few times before. Was it possible for Michael Massey to be retained into this role and continue on preserving F1's integrity from an FIA perspective? Um, so if, if I refer back to a previous episode, I was actually expecting the FAA to do nothing. So in that sense, I am surprised that they've actually taken an action on board and they've actually, obviously, you'll get to the other aspects of this news. But I am surprised that they've removed Michael Matty because um, it, effect, it effectively admits that he made a mistake and therefore he's been redeployed. So not that the FA can do anything because, as we've touched before, they can't change the rules to the rule, the championship because the rules aren't there. But they've admitted he made a mistake, effectively, because moving him, they haven't defended him. They haven't tried to say, no, he didn't do anything wrong. Like, okay, we move him. Um, but they, I don't think they had a, a choice of to redeploy him to another part of the FIA um, just because that was probably what Mercedes would have been pushing for. Um, and obviously Mercedes would have put their weight behind any investigation. And obviously the engines they provide, they Mercedes do carry some weight in the sport, same as Ferrari and Red Bull. So it, I'm not surprised that they've had to redeploy him, but I'm surprised the FA had to do an action, if that makes sense of what the point I was trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you on that one. Um, it is quite convoluted and quite complex to sort of get this, um, I suppose, one singular opinion on this and how this uh, this act or this action, if you like, has kind of left implications or inferences all over the place throughout the F1 community, which leaves itself to its own interpretation of the events. I mean, I can understand your opinion and a lot of opinions of F1 fans that were very disgruntled by what happened um, at Abu Dhabi last season, that's pulling it mildly, that the implications of this action suggest that the FIA overall, through their report, that which still are waiting to hear the findings of, uh, are under the opinion that he was at fault for what happened at Abu Dhabi, or he didn't follow the rules accordingly. I mean, I, I don't know if the FIA truly believe this to be true, or if the report will come out and suggest that that is the case. Um as I said before, I think following what happened, whether he was within the rules to do what he did or he wasn't, um, following the backlash that happened to Abu Dhabi, I don't think it was possible for him to continue on as the race director. I think it was a culmination uh, or a plethora of 
issues and errors that had been made or perhaps unpopular decision making that confused the paddock confused the fan base you know by extension of that and you know it wasn't just one moment it wasn't just one incident you know you you could have done the same thing for so many things that happened over the last two seasons when he's been involved and I do think it's a good idea to redeploy him into another area whatever that is I'm not sure um but I do think it was the right decision to move him out of the the spotlight that he you know put inadvertently perhaps put himself into um for better or worse and just try and move on with the best uh, intentions going forward and and it looks like F1 are trying to do that now to try and repair the damage that was caused to its integrity by what happened in Abu Dhabi when Lewis Hamilton was cruelly robbed of an eighth world championship through very controversial circumstances which we never may hear the end of uh, for you know for right or wrong reasons um, let alone hear how it all transpired and whether or not it was right to do so and it will have you know you can make your own mind up on that one as most of the F1 fan base have done and but following this, they have uh, announced that he's going to be replaced in a shared role by uh, Eduardo Freitas, Niles uh, Witch, apologies if I'm mispronouncing this, and they're going to be assisted by Herbie Blash, who coincidentally was formerly Charlie Whiting's deputy as well. So there's plenty of experience there, uh, especially Eduardo Freitas. You know, that's someone that's very much going to be in control and not very easily moved as well on certain positions. So, uh I don't think the the teams are going to have a very easy try and time trying to rattle him or potentially sway his opinion on certain things, but he's certainly a good company to support him. Um, in addition to this, uh, direct communication with the race director from the teams has been banned altogether, so we're not going to see any more from Total Wolf or Christian Horner or Jonathan Wheatley or anyone else in the paddock trying to uh, you know, talk directly to the race director to try and skew their verdicts or trying to inform them of certain circumstances that could be adhered to in certain conditions of the race back and forth that we saw a lot on the broadcast over the last year or two. Um, I mean, Lee, we spoke about this already. I'm guessing this is something that you're not re- really going to miss either. It was something that we've, we we were aware of, but we never actually got to hear on the broadcast and it came up quite recently. Uh, race after race after race, the more that we heard it, for me, it kind of lost its luster very, very quickly. And, and I'm quite glad to see the back of it. Yeah, I, I'm quite glad to see the back of it. I, I think this probably always has happened, the direct communications to the race director, but obviously with Liberty Media trying to bring the sport closer to the fans, they've brought more, obviously, interactions to the foreground, and that's highlighted how often this goes on, especially in a close race and in a close championship battle. So I'm glad to see that gone, um, but I do believe that there will still be communication between the teams and the race directing assistants, but not to the race director. If I'm, uh, if I read that correctly, so do correct me if I'm wrong. If, yeah. if I misread that, yeah, no, yeah, no you're exactly. absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's literally going to be filtered through elsewhere. Uh, they'll still have communications, but it won't be yeah. to the race director, which I think is the best thing for it. Because, yeah, you know, regardless of your opinion on what happened in Abu Dhabi with Michael Massey, and this is an isolated incident, you know, I must stress that because there have obviously been other incidents where he would have had the same problem. But um, it certainly can't help your decision making when you have to make a decision very, very quickly. And I think we we probably would have gathered this when um, you, you had Red Bull coming at him from one side, you had Mercedes coming at him from another, and you had other you know team principals that may have had their own views on stuff that we didn't actually get to hear on the broadcast. But I remember him saying, 
you know, repeatedly, I think it was to Christian Horner when Christian said, look, Michael, we need one lap of racing. That's all we need. We can get these lap cars out of the way. And I think Michael Massey was basically saying, well, yes, but the paramount or the your priority is to get rid of Latifi's car, uh, you know, and then get the marshals off the circuit and then we'll focus on trying to get the lap cars out of the way, stuff like that. It really can't help the decision-making. And this is not a defence of what happened, but it certainly doesn't help when you're trying to think with a calm, clear mind with so much at stake. And then you end up going on to make the decision that you made, which eventually led to the controversial outcome that we got. So I'm yeah. kind of glad that, you know, we've kind of gotten rid of this and I think we can just move past it. It wasn't comfortable viewing, I must say. Um, certainly wasn't traumatic. I mean, come on, that's a, that was a strong word. I, I saw used a lot on social media and I thought, you know, relatively speaking, probably not the right word to use. Um, in addition to this, uh, the FIA have now introduced a new virtual racing control room. Um, which is going to be established to support the race director in making decisions in real time. I suppose, in a way, it's a bit like a, a Formula One's version of VAR that we see in football. Although I think I saw one interesting post on social media, Lee, that said uh, it was basically a picture of all the cars lined up in the garage saying, this will be the F1 race being paused whilst we refer to VAR for a non-track decision. And I thought, yeah, I, I could imagine that. For anyone that's a football fan is familiar with VAR and some of the issues that we have with that, you can't really stop a Formula One race to look at a decision. So, uh, I mean, do you think this is a good idea? I mean, I, I suppose it can't hurt to have an independent panel reviewing it. I mean, the thing that I struggle with this, um, this video assistance for the race director is, isn't that partly the way you what the race stewards do? They have the video and the replays to enable delays with the the race director. Well, yeah. So my my yeah. question is, what benefit does having another team that's supposed to be independent, like the race stewards are supposed? Well, what, I mean, what advantage does it having a second team that does a job that the race stewards do? I mean, is it this? I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head, Lee. It's pretty much the same thing, you know. Now, now that I think about it, um, it pretty much is the stewards' room. As far yeah. as I was aware, I mean, Michael Massey in the race director role wasn't making decisions on penalties or certain things like that. Of course, he was broadcasting it, but ultimately it was the steward's decision. You know, he can advise them on certain things, um, but it was ultimately their decision. So, yeah, I, I agree. I'm not quite sure what uh, the value of this is going to add. It, it could possibly be because it's, um, I think I heard, if I heard rightly, it's going to be outside of the race venue. So it's going to be how VAR usually works when they have a um, a centre in Stockley Park away from the uh, the football stadium where they can make the decisions without, I uh, suppose, any influence from anyone involved in the game. Uh, and in F1 terms, I suppose that means that, you know, they're going to be able to make their decision away from the circuit to achieve the desired outcome or perhaps be more consistent in how they apply the regulations. I know that was one issue that was very much brought up last season that certain regulations were not consistently managed or consistently uh, upheld. Uh, track limits were certainly one of them. And, you know, how aggressive can you be when it comes to defending? I know Max Verstappen in particular, you know, pushed the limits to that a lot. We saw Perez and Lando Norris have that back and forth in Austria, which uh, obviously you know, brought up this uh, this issue on how hard can you race someone. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly a lot that we're going to have to wait and see on this one before we kind of get uh, a definitive idea of what this virtual racing control room is going to be. And as you said, Lee, how it's going to differ from the current situation that we already have with the stewards, I suppose. Um, 
But let us know what you guys think about those changes so far. Do you think those are the right ones for the FAA? Do you think it's a step in the right direction in terms of preserving the integrity? And um, I suppose what else do you think needs to be implemented to help improve this further that the FAA haven't already done or aren't currently looking into as far as we're aware? Now, to the uh, main part of this episode, Lee, we're going to be looking and having a little discussion about the new cars that we've seen break cover over the last week or so since the last episode. And I want to start us with one team who officially haven't broken cover yet, but we have seen a version of their car doing some shakedown runs already. And that's the Alfa Romeo team with their new car, the C42. Now, as I said already, we haven't seen their car officially launched yet. That's not going to be happening until Sunday, the 27th of February. So after the pre-season session, as F1 are calling it this week. Um, So... This is kind of an interesting situation that Alfa Romeo find themselves in. You know, I've been trying to look into their team, look into their previous performances in the last few years. And last year really, really surprised me of Alfa Romeo. There seemed to be a lot of hope and optimism with the team. that They were really going to rise into the midfield. I remember Frederick Vasseur was saying so many good things about the team. They've got great facilities, great people there. And yet they ended up finishing ninth in the Constructors' Championship. And I know for a fact that last year's car was certainly not the ninth fastest car on the grid. They really, really underperformed. So from what we can make of looking at this car so far, Lee, there's not really much that we can read into it. So I guess we kind of need to move forward to the what do they need to improve on part. Um, Val from Mayo, what, what do they need to improve on um, in your mind? Well, this is probably going to be something Courtney will like because I know he's very uh, um, uh, pro-bashing for the uh, for the uh, Alfa Romeo he forgot the team name (laughs) Um, yeah he loves them they're secretly his favourite team uh, he tells me all the time how much he loves them it's it's more out of disappointment that they're underperforming that really you know drives him that that way but uh, no secretly he does love the Alphas okay that makes more sense now Um, no I think one thing they really need to improve on is as you've already touched on, is the the underperforming. They need to actually deliver the performance the car delivers, and obviously that's not just the drivers because obviously the drivers are the main part, but it's the team strategy, the team operations, mm-hmm. um, including the pit stops, and the um, it just needs to deliver on a race weekend what their potential. And I, I don't just mean a low fuel run glory and in practice, which admittedly they are guilty of occasionally doing, but just. Um, delivering the performance that is, they show overall race weekend and not go oh there they're gonna have such a great um p1 p2 p3 oh they've qualified 18th oh no they finished races just ahead of the house um but you were a lot higher up and it's delivering the performance across the whole race weekend and oh, they should get the strategy wrong and they go backwards it's that's really where for me i think they need to improve yeah i mean you, you probably could argue with alfa romeo that they are the number one team uh, when it comes to us saying to them that one thing they need to improve this season uh, is basically the whole the whole shebang, the whole car, the, ho- the whole organisation, if you like, and everything that falls within it, it needs to be better. Now, Frederick Vassera said in recent years they've been struggling to meet, if you, if you like, uh, have a invisible budget cap of $140 million, which is what we have this season. Alfa Romeo have been struggling to meet that sort of figure in terms of spending over the last few years. I've had some financial issues. Um, 
a member technical director, Yan Monshou, was saying that, uh, that they carried a lot of technical issues and faults that were dating back to 2017, let alone the 2019 regs, because of these financial issues hindering them. And I can understand that. You know, it can be very difficult if you haven't got the money. Formula One is a very competitive sport and you do need that financial backing to succeed or even to live and survive in the sport. And, uh, you know, Frederick Vasseur has said this season that's not going to be an issue. They've had a lot of financial revenue, a bit of a windfall, if you like, coming their way, most notably probably the money that comes from Guan Yu Zhou joining the team this season. But they shouldn't have any issues meeting the budget cap of $140 million uh, spending this season. So that is good news for Alfa Romeo. Um, the problem for them, as I said, throughout this period, they haven't finished higher than eighth in the entire Turbo Hybrid era. So backdating since the 2014, I've already said that they've got some great individual personnel there, great wind tunnel and facilities, uh, but they've just not really made the, the most of them. And that is going to be the big, big task for them this season. They need to do better with their car this season than they did last season. I think there are a lot of opportunities that they could have picked up some big points and they didn't. I mean, there's a reason Williams were able to pick up points on the on the days that they were good and Alfa Romeo didn't. Um so there's a lot of that uh, coming into that equation. They need to be better this season in that regard. Um, in addition to this, it's an all-new driver lineup for Alfa Romeo this season. I think the only team that has got an all-new driver lineup for this season, uh, Guan Yu Zhou, the F2 runner-up, a solid driver in F2. He's getting his chance in Formula 1. I think he certainly deserves his opportunity in F1. We'll just have to wait and see if he's going to be fast enough. And of course, we've got Valtteri Bottas joining the team from Mercedes, replacing Kimi Raikkonen, who retired last season. Now, on the surface, by comparison to Giovinazzi and Raikkonen, for different reasons, this team is, this partnership is a bit more youthful. Um, obviously, less experience, but there's a lot of experience in both drivers for different reasons. I'll be honest with you, Lee, I can't honestly say that this Alfa Romeo lineup is any stronger than it was last season. If anything, it's probably weaker for different reasons. Um, what, do you, what are your take on Bottas and Joe? Do you think that this is a downgrade on Raikkonen and Giovinazzi, or do you think that this is one that has bigger upside potential than what we saw for the three years that Raikkonen and Giovinazzi were together? I think initially this is a downgrade on their driver lineup. However, the potential will be greater. Um, and that's mainly down to obviously how their new rookie performs and how many crashes or spins he does or does not have through the course of the season which he probably have a few especially the first few races because most rookies seem to have a, a, take a while to bed in um, so there's a great potential cause, um, not about to use any slouch either um, he, he's obviously I, I, in my opinion, I rate him higher than Giovinazzi. And at speed, probably better than Kimi, but Kimi had a lot of experience. And you know, when you get those horrible races, that just chaotic, what drivers turned up at the top end of the field were the the drivers with the most experience. You ended up, um, I can't remember what race it was last year where you had Fernando and Kimi um, found themselves further up the field because it was just chaos. I can't remember which race that was. Um, oh, was it not Hungary? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, because I mean, Fernando yeah. stayed there and then Kimi just sort of yeah. fell down the pecking order. Yeah, he fell down. But when the chaos ensued, they, they were the ones that were at the the, the front to begin with because the experience shone through. Um, so the obviously experience does count. 
undoubtedly brings that in buckets, but Guangzhou, no, he doesn't bring... Oh, yeah, for most sport, he does, but in Formula 1, he's a whole different beast. He doesn't bring that with him, and that's going to potentially hurt them. Yeah, it's a really tough one because I'm not convinced that this is a step forward for them. Having said that, I do think change was needed in this lineup. Um, you know, Valtteri Bottas, he's, you know, what, 32 now, uh, 10 years younger than Kimi Raikkonen uh, when he retired from F1. And with respect to Valtteri Bottas, there were a lot of periods last season, the last few years, where Kimi Raikkonen was still able to demonstrate that at the very minimum, he was as quick as his teammate, if not better, and still was able to pull in some solid performances when he really wanted to. Um, You could argue that that more calmer, less volatile environment that he experienced compared to his time at Ferrari uh, probably brought out some more better qualities in him that perhaps we hadn't seen in Kimi for some time. And with Valtteri, I feel like it's there's a big unknown to how good Valtteri really is. I mean, we've we've said countless times on this podcast whilst he's been at Mercedes that he's always been a very solid driver. He's been a very good number two for Lewis Hamilton. But when Mercedes really needed him to step up for the team, over time, that seemed to be less and less frequent. And maybe that came from the many occasions where Valtteri was asked to step aside or James got on the radio, you know, all jokes aside. Um, and that really tore into Valtteri. Maybe we'll see a different Valtteri in this Alfa Romeo team. But at the moment, I'm not sure how much better Valtteri Bottas is going to be than what Kimi Raikkonen was to the team. With all due respect, maybe we'll see more from Valtteri, but we did see a lot from Kimi. In regards to Joe compared to Giovinazzi, right now it's definitely a downgrade with all respect to Joe. Um, the problem with Giovinazzi was so inconsistent, but he was yeah. fast. And there were times when he was very, very quick uh, to the point where he was clearly quicker than Kimi, but he just wasn't able to produce that often enough or he couldn't sustain it over the course of the weekend. So for Guan Yu Zhou, that's going to be the trick. It's not necessarily about being fast. He has to be consistent because Alfa yeah. Romeo do need to pick up points. Um, and ultimately, that's what dropped them last season below Williams. And it's going to be a big ask, but hopefully the added financial revenue that they've been able to invest in the team, as Frederick Vasseur has been saying, will be able to pay uh, dividends for them in the, well, in the coming season and beyond that. So uh, moving on to the next team, uh, we've got Williams, who unveiled their W44 uh, this time last week, actually. So uh, well, we could have done them last week, but we've decided to wait and sort of digest everything and talk about them this week. Um, what did you make of the car, Lee? Because um, I wasn't a big fan of the the, the reveal. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It was practically another show car with an updated livery. But then we saw the, the rendered photos that showed us a little bit more. Then not, not much after that. And then we saw them run out with their show car. Sorry, not the show car. Run out with their actual car at Silverstone doing their shakedown. And it looked a little bit better. Uh, what did you make of the new Williams? Uh, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, as an actual reveal, it's, like, oh, it's another one of these non going to hide everything images, which obviously I understand why the teams do it, but it's frustrating as a fan. Um, but oh, the shakedown, I got to admit, I was really liked how that Williams look, the line and the uh, delivery. It, it just really um, brings back some of the older de- days of the Williams. For me, anyway. Um, so I, re- I really like how it looks and um, put together. and Obviously, different curves and lines compared to some of the other cars we've seen. Or maybe it's just how I saw it. Um, but yeah, I really like the look of that car. Um, for me, 
it doesn't look as good as the Aston Martin, but it's definitely one of the better looking cars on this uh, season for a league, for at least in my opinion. Yeah, I, I like what they've done with the colour scheme. Um, originally, I wasn't a fan of it. Um, I was one of those people that was saying that it did need a little bit of white on it. Admittedly, as unpopular as it was, I wasn't one of those people that hated last season's livery. If anything, I thought it was actually okay uh, with this sort of new Williams identity that Joss Capito and Doralton Capital, by extension, are trying to pursue with Williams. It seems that they've found something like that now. Um, they've retained some of the, the diamond shapes that are on the car, some of the geometry there. And also the colour scheme, they wanted to retain that British identity, even though it's in new hands, it's not with the Williams family anymore. And I like that. Um, it looked a lot like one of the old Legiers from the late 90s. Um, for those of you older F1 fans will know what I'm talking about. Um, the younger ones, I suppose the best memory of the Legier team was in 96 when Olivier Panis won the Monaco Grand Prix. Quite a famous story there. So definitely recommend those of you that weren't aware of that to check that out. It was a really fun race to watch at the time. Um but similar livery to that, really, uh, in, in the Silverstone, mild, muggy-looking day in the rain. It might look a little bit better in the sunshine that we'll be seeing it at, not necessarily at Catalonia, but at Bahrain in a few weeks' time. One thing I did notice, though, Lee, on the livery was the uh, Ayrton Senna logo that has been on the car since 1995 after Ayrton sadly passed away the season before at Imola. That's not going to be on the car this season. Now, whilst that did seem a bit unpopular at the time, I can understand why that's not going to be on the car. Um, Jos Capito himself, um, I've got the quote here actually, he said that we had to look to the future and not show the drivers the Senna S every time they get in the car, being reminded of what happened to Ayrton Senna. It, it's time for the team to move on and be very honourable to Senna, but we have a very dedicated space in the museum and honour him there. And also they're going to be very much more involved with the Senna Foundation and the Senna family as well to support that. So based on that alone, I think, that kind of makes sense. I don't think it's doing a disservice to uh, Ayrton's memory or anything like that. I, I don't think he would have agreed uh, with some of those thoughts if they were, uh, if he was still around. But um, yeah, something that's obviously going to be missing from the car. I mean, I mean, is that something that you noticed, Lee, when you looked at the car? Is that something that, uh, I mean, to, there was a time when I forgot that that was even there, but it, it, it has been there for some time now. So it is going to be missed. Yeah, I mean, I noticed it wasn't there. Um, I do understand the the reasons behind it and while how well they've justified it as. So I completely understand that, but I, I still think it should be there just for the, he, he, just a great driver. You put aside the great driver, Center Worlds, but the the work that the Center Foundation has done and 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 just being involved in the Formula One and legacy of the Williams team. All right, it, they say. It's not about the Williams family, which is all right. It's not, but it's they're still coming to the Williams brand and the British heritage and the team heritage. They're not like our oh, clean slate, new team, new ownership. They're trying to keep that brand, so to speak. And I think that's an S. It's just part of the brand now of of the Williams, and 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 I, I feel a loss of having missing that on the car. And I, as much as I understand the logic, I think it should still be there personally. No, that's fair enough. Um, you know, perfectly legitimate reasons for and against on that one. So uh, but we'll move on to talking a little bit about the car underneath. So some of the key factors about this car that we're going to go into a little bit of detail on is that this year, Williams are going to be using the Mercedes gearbox and the hydraulics in addition to the engine uh, this season. So it's obviously going to be very important for them. However, most notably, Williams have decided to design their own rear suspension 
they're not going to be running the Mercedes one or take that like Aston Martin have, which is a bit of a surprise. Because I think if you've got the opportunity to take that many Mercedes parts, considering how good they were last season and how they can be homologated into this new car, um, you know, people were talking and raving about the Mercedes rear suspension, especially when it seemed to have played a part in the straight line performance that Lewis Hamilton most notably had last season. But Williams decided to retain that independence in that department. And bear in mind, this is a team that we're talking about that for so long in Formula One's history have been very well renowned to try to produce all of the car themselves, with the exception of the engine and on some occasions the gearbox as well. So they've had to redeploy or second certain personnel to other areas to help out where they're not going to be needed as a result of taking on the Mercedes gearbox and hydraulic system. But they're still trying to retain their own identity in that regard as an independent outfit with this rear suspension. Um, what are your thoughts on this one, Lee? Do you feel that's a good idea for them to do that? Or do you think that, that perhaps they should have followed Aston Martin's example and take on the rear suspension as well from Mercedes? I think at this um, point in the regulations, why not build your own rear suspension? Because obviously suspension has is quite influenced by the aerodynamics and the, uh, on the car. And if they feel Williams feel that they've got a novel, um, a, a get the words out, novel aerodynamic solution that other teams may have not thought of, they don't want to be hampered by a Mercedes rear suspension that may hinder their their new aero. So design it to work on their new aero package that hopefully may they think will give them an advantage or at least bring them up towards the, the midfield or top midfield. They don't want to be hindered by um, playing around a, another team suspension. So I, I think I pretty respect their not just buying all the parts they can and trying to make the most of it. No, no, very, very true. Uh, I mean, it can work sometimes, but of course, you know, if you want to take Williams back to where they feel that they belong at the very, very top end of Formula One, then sometimes you have to go your own way with certain things. You can only use, uh, be a customer teams for so much uh, and still expect to be successful in Formula One. Um I think it's important to talk about Williams, what they need to be doing going forward, because this is a really hard one. They've got Alex Albon, who's effectively on loan from Red Bull, but we'll see how that goes. Nicholas Latifi, who again, as we said, is a very solid driver, but, um, you know, it, it all really depends on how much longer he's, he, he manages to be able to get the funding to, or the Latifi family decides to fund his career in F1. Even though Williams do seem to like him and enjoy working with him, I think the financial part is a big element of that which supports him. But um, overall, what would you say is the one area that Williams need to focus on improving this season? Because I don't think there's one big thing in particular. It, perhaps it's more of a box-ticking exercise of loads of little things that this new organisational technical structure that they have needs to deliver on going forward. Uh, for me, I'm probably going to go out, out of the um, suggestion where they need to improve on. But I think they need to improve on how they work without um, George Russell, Mr. Saturday himself. And you know, obviously, I'm not going to put down Alex Albon because I quite like I like him compared to Latifi. All right, I'm a bit mediocre with Latifi, but he, George had a big impact on Williams and where he put the car and where he led the car. And for me, the area they, they need to improve on is how they work as a team without George's input and George's speed that that's for me the big box they're gonna need to improve on yeah very much so um i mean we can't understate the fact of how critical it's going to be for williams to try and find a way 
to replace George Russell. Um, Alex Albon is certainly capable as a, as a lead yeah. driver in that regard. You know, he, he did a very good job with uh, Toro Rosso and effectively Alpha Tauri after that for a while. And then, of course, Red Bull, he uh, didn't really get the best rub of the green there. But there were signs that he was improving, just not sufficiently enough for, to stay on for the time being. Although, you know, that situation may change in the coming years. For me, as I said already, I think the Williams team, as a technical structure, it's still very unproven. You know, we're talking about a team that a few years ago was struggling to get an F1 car out um, and for, for testing. And as embarrassing as that was, it took them three days before they started running. Everyone else was already two days ahead of them. Over the winter, we've been hearing stories about Williams having issues trying to get everything together in this new structure. And, you know, there's a potential that they may have delays getting to testing this time around. That doesn't seem like that's going to happen because they managed to get a car together to do the shakedown last week, even though there were some electrical issues that caused a delay in that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, this Williams team need to prove that they are better than what they were last year. And that's not always easy to do. Very much easier said than done. And, and bear in mind, this is a team last season that had a car that was very peaky in terms of downforce. But then in other weeks at some other circuits, they were very detached from the field. Um, they certainly weren't the eighth best car on the grid. Um, and they did have to maximise their opportunities. This season, it has to be more about consistency and being a regular player in that midfield at the very least to demonstrate that they are going in the right direction. You know, as I said, a very unproven project with plenty of room to grow, but there has to be signs, tangible signs of progress this season. And I think we're going to find out one way or the other if this current structure at Williams is up to the task. Um, Let's move on to one car that I was very much looking forward to seeing from uh, my own personal biases, and that was the Ferrari F175, the car marked for the 75th anniversary for Ferrari in Formula One. Now, Lee, first things first, I know those of you that are watching this on YouTube will probably agree with me, or those of you that have seen this already, but I mean, forgive my biases, but what an incredibly gorgeous looking car. I mean, I thought the Aston Martin was going to be tough to beat. But I don't think I'm too far off in saying that Ferrari may have just blown them out of the water with this design. I mean, wow. Uh, what are your thoughts on the new Ferrari, Lee? Are you impressed by the look of it? Um, I mean, the, the lines are intriguing. Although, I, as a looking of a car, I don't think it beats the Aston Martin. Um, sorry, Adam. <laughs> That's my opinion. Everyone's um, a hater. Um, but the the it's a, an intriguing uh, livery. I mean, I, I feel that it needs more white but that's what we've had re- more recently than red and black. Um, but the lines are really interesting on that on the car. And obviously it's caused a bit of uh, curiosities about, especially their side pods, if, about how that Ferrari is going to work. Or either does Ferrari have a, a completely ingenious solution or they go completely wrong? It's That's a, a real weird question regarding uh, those side pods. But yeah, the car is definitely intriguing to look at. Yeah, it it is a really tough one to call with Ferrari because, of course, there's been a lot of talk about Ferrari putting so much effort into this new car. You know, they've had a lot of time to work on it. They effectively had a whole season. If you think that last season their car was pretty solid, they didn't really have to develop it much at all. 
um, other than a few bits, other than what was working with the engine. But again, that was stuff that was going to feed into this year's engine and this year's electrical uh, power that went with it. Ferrari have literally pulled out the stops on this car from what I've read and for what I've seen and what they've told us. Um, Matti Bonotto, you know, very much addressing the thinking outside the box idea that comes with his car concept. He, he's gone on and said that, you know, that they had tackled the challenge of this project with a very innovative approach. They believe that, you know, they had to take on this exercise with an open mind. It's called on all of their knowledge their creativity and above all their commitment to this car and he's gone on to say that he calls it a brave Ferrari because they've interpreted the rules thinking outside of the box with some innovations that could go one way or the other and with Ferrari when they've had that kind of thinking on certain ideas more often than not it's not exactly proven to be in the silver bullet that I think a lot of people have been hoping for I suppose the last kind of silver bullet that Ferrari had was back in 2017 with the side pod design that was inspired by Rory Byrne. Uh, again, veteran fans will remember that name very fondly from the successful Schumacher era at Ferrari in the early 2000s. Um, this car has really divided opinion on pundits, aerodynamicists and engineers alike. A lot of them are confused and unsure whether this this thinking outside the box idea that this car has been produced and conceived from will actually work from an aero's perspective. Um, I mean, I've heard some saying that this could be a very, very good car. I've heard some saying that this could be a very, very bad car and that Ferrari have gone completely too far with what they've tried to do from an aero perspective. Um, just to look at some of the, you know, the facets of this car, you know, the, the truncated undercut area underneath. Um, it, I think Gary Anderson on the races uh, F1 podcast gave the impression, gave him the impression that this was a car that had been designed in, in two separate parts and it doesn't actually meet in the middle. They don't really merge or come together. And, you know, Gary knows his F1 cars, and I'm pretty sure that that's not exactly a compliment in terms of what Ferrari's approach is. But perhaps Ferrari have stumbled onto something that no one has thought of, or perhaps they've gone a completely different way to the norm. We'll have to wait and see on that one. I mean, the valley areas of the side pods, I mean, they look like buckets, don't they? Um, yeah. I mean, w- what are Ferrari going to do if it rains, Lee? It's just going to be carrying loads of extra weight in water, surely, with those things. Well, um, I don't think there's any point in them racing at Spa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if it's anything like last season, no one will be racing there. But um, yeah, I, those, that is such an incredibly strange looking design. I mean, it looks great, but um, the fact that the, the rear part of those uh, those valleys don't go down to sort of flow the air towards the beam wing or at least to the back of the diffuser, it is a bit strange that Ferrari haven't done that. I mean, perhaps, you know, whatever they've got in mind, it, it will work, or perhaps there's going to be different designs to the car that we'll see in testing. I mean, there's a lot of things there that Ferrari are going to want to keep hidden. And, um, you know, th- there's a lot of parts of that car as well that uh, that they said that they're going to be developing throughout the season, as I said already. Um, I mean, Enrico Cardile was saying earlier at the launch, he was saying that they have... They've been forced to set a lot of goals. Some of them, there are odds at each other and all of them are challenging and they've had to set some priorities among those goals. Some they've achieved and some that they're going to be uh, close to, but ultimately they haven't fully achieved yet in developing. So even that from that statement alone, it doesn't really seem to give me confidence that Ferrari have been 100% confident that the design concept that they're going down is going to prove to be 
what they need to do in order to be in the world championship fight or compete for race wins again. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not going to happen, but it feels like Ferrari are, have got a few different options that they can pursue and they're not 100% confident that the one that they've gone down could prove to be the right one. Yeah, um, I mean, for me with Ferrari, if if you had to describe Ferrari as what, what it can do best, being an innovative and outside-the-box thinking team is not how I'll describe Ferrari. So the fact that Ferrari have described this car as that in itself doesn't fill me with confidence. Although I'll happily be proven wrong that they go, oh, wow, they really have thought out of the box. It does work. I'll be happy to see it. But uh, I, I just don't have the faith that Ferrari have hit their, the silver bullet they think they have. Um, they, and they, they'll, they'll get themselves out of the trouble if they have gone down the wrong route because they always do when they go down the wrong route. Yeah, but it's just, I don't I don't think it's the, the solution they, they want. Yeah, I, I mean, I have faith in Ferrari to get this right. Um, a part of me feels like, because it's so strange and so different to what everybody else has done, it obviously looks on the surface that Ferrari may have got it completely wrong, um, you know, more likely than got it right. But then with that being said, there's been so many different opinions on this car. I honestly can't tell which way it's going to go. You know, there are some people saying that this car doesn't make sense. And then there are other people that are saying that Ferrari have, um, you know, tested this concept against uh, the more thin, elegant concept that we've seen Mercedes roll out. And of course, we're going to talk about in a moment. And they reckon that it's more aero efficient than that. And that's why they've gone down this route. So, I suppose it remains to be seen. One thing that I think we can agree on is that we're expecting the Ferrari power unit to be much more, um, much more, uh, you know, competitive than it was compared to uh, the Honda and the Mercedes power units, which is obviously their immediate competition. Even that is quite daring as well from a Ferrari perspective. And if anything, you know, given the last few years, Ferrari have really had to recover from the setback that they had in 2019 because of the power unit. Uh, controversy that the FIA never really got to the bottom of in terms of proving that Ferrari weren't obeying the correct technical directives but you know it did affect their power unit they had to change stuff and uh, you know they were worse off for it and they've had to recover that for the last few years to a point now where they really have to get this one right as well you know that they can't unlike the aero part they can fix that but with the engine if they don't manage to hit the nail on the head with the engine for this season and get themselves to where they feel they need to be they're going to be struggling for the next few years with this issue. Yeah, they will uh, They will be struggling with the engine, but I don't think they'll struggle with the engine. They, whatever they, yeah, really, they did think out of the box and, and did an innovative solution in 2019, <laughs> whatever they did with the engine, the FAA didn't understand it. So they did do something right on that aspect. But the, the, the Ferrari are coming out saying that They've got back to their 2019 power levels. Get the get the words there. But so I'm sure they can do it because they they can they build good engines in the past. That I'm sure they they've got the know how and the knowledge to get there and to get their engine back on performance with Mercedes and Honda slash Red Bull. Not really sure what they they call that engine in the, that car anymore. Um, so I, I have faith that they get the engine right. I'm not worried about that. It's for me, it's more about the car. Yeah. I mean, one thing I think we can say about Ferrari, they certainly left no stern unturned on this one. It just depends on, 
if have they made the right choice on what concept to go down and will it pay off for them? I suppose we'll have to wait and see. Um, one thing I think we can say is that it's a push rod suspension on the Ferrari. There was a lot of reports and rumours saying they were going to go pull rod, but it seems that Ferrari are not going to go push rod on the uh, pull rod on the front suspension. They're going push rod and they're going to go pull rod on the back. So, you know, that, that aside, um, looking at Ferrari as a whole, Lee, what is the one thing that you think that they need to improve on coming into this season? I think Ferrari need to improve on is their not so much their strategy, but the yeah I actually would say it's a model strategy in the race operations. I was going to say the race operations, but I think it's their their strategy that the last few years they have really haven't been in the championship fight as much as they'd like to have been. But I think they've got a bit rusty regarding the the race strategy and how it impacts um, Carlos and Charles and. There's been times last year where they they put the other driver out and it really frustrated the other driver, um, and especially like Monza comes to mind where Carlos um, and the race strategy favoured Carlos a lot more than Charles, and that really put Charles out, especially with the I think the slipstream at Monza, um, and I think that's where they need to improve is just managing their drivers' expectations and race strategy because. As we've all, all three of us have said, that if Ferrari in the championship battle, they could potentially get more Ferrari. I know you said it less than Courtney and myself, but they need to handle that and get on top of that. And that's where I think they need to improve. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you on those lines in that regard. As the one thing I think Ferrari need to improve. I mean, last season I said I think pound for pound they were the best team last season. Um, I still stick with that. I think they've made a lot of improvements on the strategy calls that they've made and particularly the pit stops. I think they made a lot of improvements to how efficient and how quick their pit stops were. I think they were one of the best teams last season. Um, the problem is, though, for Ferrari, or the caveat I suppose you could throw at them in this scenario, is that it's quite easy to look good when there's less pressure on you, when you're fighting for third in the championship and ultimately the changes that they made to the car particularly with the power unit helped to propel them ahead of McLaren despite arguably having a better car than them for some time but it gave them that edge that they needed to finish ahead of McLaren in the constructors championship this season however whilst with all due respect to McLaren Ferrari may find themselves fighting them this season but as long as that's with a view to being in that ballpark with Red Bull and Mercedes as well and Whilst there's not been much pressure on Ferrari to get those elements right, they will be coming under severely more scrutiny and more pressure this season. So for Ferrari, it's going to be critical that if they do get this right with this car and this engine combination, and I really hope, you know, for my sake as a Ferrari fan and for Ferrari in general, because F1 needs Ferrari to be at the front, um, you know, to make F1 stronger in general. I think a lot of people would agree to that. Um, Ferrari need to make sure that their strategy calls and their pit stops are able to hold up in a championship fight with the likes of Red Bull, Mercedes, and possibly McLaren or anyone else that finds themselves in that position this season, because that could ultimately prove to be what decides the championship one way or the other with those fine margins. So that is going to be critical for Ferrari. I think as well for Charles Leclerc personally, obviously, you know, I've talked to him up a lot, but I think last year was a wake-up call that signs gave him. So perhaps he does need to wake up a little bit as well, Charles Leclerc, and we'll see the best out of him. Um, not that he wasn't any good last season, but I certainly think, he, you know, there's more to come from him. And hopefully this is the car that he can, uh, you know, bring that ability out of. So we'll have to wait and see. It's certainly intriguing. 
Um, let's move on to Mercedes now. Uh, the W13. Uh, sorry, I'm just looking through all my notes. For those of you that can't see what I'm doing, just flicking through the pages and pages and pages of notes that I've got for this podcast. Um, right, Mercedes, W13. Now, it's pretty much all set from scratch. As Total Wolf put it during the launch, the past achievements mean nothing. We start from zero. Very much likes to talk about these new beginnings as an opportunity for Mercedes to start fresh, start from scratch, rip up uh, the book on how to succeed in Formula One and then rewrite it again afterwards. Looking at this new car, Lee, um, it looked very, very elegant. A very elegant interpretation of the regulations. I think that's something that we come to expect from Mercedes, but I've I got to say, it, another beautiful looking car. Um, quite a lot of them as well. I mean, well, what did you think of the new Mercedes? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I found it a very um, beautiful car, like you said, very elegant. Um, I, for me, it didn't have the same feel as how that Aston Martin looked, but it's still a very good looking car. Um, and I really look forward to seeing how that car goes. To be perfectly honest. Yeah, um, I mean, looking at the car, just to pull up a few points on the technical aspect, it looked like they did a very nice job on the front wing. Um, you know, the way that the flaps are adjusted, it kind of opens it up very nicely to help shape the airflow, if you like, through those crucial venturi tunnels via the openings at the front of the floor. That's going to be very, very critical as well um, for these new regulations with ground effect. Um, the tightly packaged side pods that we saw on the Mercedes that that will shrink wrap the internal components with the surface shape sleeking down to augment that effect as well. I think that's a really, really nice, elegant looking touch from Mercedes. I mean, the big picture is that it's a, it's a sleek, sharp, elegant design. And the aim of this design from what we've heard and from what we've seen is that it's gonna they're trying to maximize the airflow to those venturi tunnels and feed clean airflow to the side pods uh, and at the rear of the car as well. I think the technical director Mike Elliott was talking about this during the launch. He said that Mercedes has taken an additional step with the the compact packaging of the side pods and the engine cover this year. So of course you remember those bulges uh, that they had. Um, or the sexy-looking bulge that James Allison was talking about last season. Yeah. The engine cover is a little bit wider uh, than before, but this is kind of uh, thanks to the split plenum arrangement for the engine uh, that's replacing that bulge. So that's why you couldn't really see it on this car compared to what we saw on the Aston Martin, who have gone a different way with it. But overall, it does look really, really good really elegant. A lot of the aerodynamicists that have reviewed this car before us have said it looks great, it looks fast, and, you know, despite the potential risks that new rules seem to create, it doesn't look like a car that Mercedes could possibly have too much trouble with in terms of maintaining that high standards that they have and maintaining their position at the top end of the pecking order. Oh, yeah, I completely agree that it, it does look like a fast car. Um, I, 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 I get the words out, come on. I'm sorry. No, I, I definitely think Mercedes will be up the top end along with Red Bull. Mercedes may not be the fastest car, but they'll definitely be up there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, the power unit is another element of that as well. You know, that they, uh, trying to think who it was that said it, because um, obviously they've had to replace Andy Cal this season. Yeah. Um, you know, he's moved on. He's not been able to oversee what's been going on with this new power unit. Uh, I think it was Hyrule Thomas, uh, Mercedes AMG HPP. 
He mentioned that they've had to change more parts of the power unit for this year than in any season since 2014. And bear in mind, we're talking about the power unit that was arguably the best power unit last season. And they've had to improve more, had to improve on it further and change more parts. And he went on to say that it was because it was of such a significant change. They modified their overall approach to design and development. They started earlier and had more points along the journey than previously, where they could experiment with some of the different technologies that they have there. Um, and, you know, it, it was about having a high level activity over that long period. That's what he went on to say. I, I guess in a way, Lee, it kind of sums up how important it is to get these new regulations right. You know, Mercedes have had issues with reliability last season. In a way, it was considered a blessing in disguise because it allowed them to take fresh power units almost on a regular basis, which allowed Lewis Hamilton in particular to extract that extra performance from his car. But with these new regulations, reliability is going to be critical. And I suppose in a way, it kind of... Um, it's a nice little segue into saying that this is probably the area that Mercedes need to improve the most. They need to improve their engine reliability. I think if they're going to sustain a championship challenge like they have been doing throughout the turbo hybrid era. Yeah, that literally was going to be my point for what they can improve on was their engine reliability. Um, I don't have another one to say because that's what I was going to put down. Yeah, no, sorry about that. But uh, yeah, for me, that I think that's what Mercedes are going to need to do. And it's going to be critical this year. I mean, we look at these new regulations and I think a lot of excitement around that is the prospect of one of the top teams or if not all of the top teams really struggling or tripping over themselves. But the caveat to that is, is Mercedes are probably the best equipped to avoid tripping over themselves of all the teams are the most resourceful in that regard how many times we've gone through different regulation changes in this turbo hybrid era mercedes always seem to find themselves leading the way or at the very very least they find themselves catching up but all of a sudden they find themselves at the front of the field halfway through the season in a way as they did last year you know they were very affected by the changes in the regulations that affected the floors the low-rate cars that they had, them and the Aston Martin, really suffered, but they were able to claw a lot of that performance back to the point where they probably had the best overall package. Um, maybe not from Silverstone onwards, but a certain point, probably Turkey was probably a great time stamp, if you like, to say that that's where Mercedes had found themselves ahead in that race with Red Bull, um, which obviously gave Lewis Hamilton a great opportunity to almost win the World Championship. You know, arguably, probably should have done. Um so with all that in mind, Lee, are there any doubts from what you've seen so far from Mercedes that they may find themselves struggling to be at the front of the field come the first race of the season? Uh, I, I don't think there's any signs of doubts um, regarding the, the, what they intend regarding the car and what they believe the car can perform at. But obviously, the things they don't know is how the other teams have come against Obviously, we've mentioned Ferrari, and I'm obviously going to re- repeat what we previously said. But if their Ferrari solution works, and it's so much better than the solution that they've tested on what Mercedes has gone down, then Ferrari's going to be the fastest car, not Mercedes. So it's so much Mercedes don't know, and what they can't control is what the other teams have um, invented, effectively, and designed their cars around. So they're, they're definitely going to be up there, as I, uh, I previously mentioned. Yeah, very much so. And uh, obviously, you know, managing that team dynamic, I suppose, with Lewis Hamilton is going to be, uh, and George Russell is going to be critical for Mercedes because this has always been one area that um, 
has really plagued Mercedes when Hamilton and Rosberg were teammates. There is the potential for that dynamic to be revisited with George Russell, who I think we can agree, whilst he will want to play the team game, will not exactly want to be uh, wasting opportunities to try and impress them if it means, you know, it comes at Lewis Hamilton's expense. So for Mercedes, do you feel that this could potentially prove to be a problem for them this season if the two of them lock horns, uh, if they're fighting for a world championship or worse, if they're fighting with amongst themselves and another team or two as in this championship as well? Oh, I, I completely think they're going to lock horns this year. Maybe not at the, the start, but as the season goes on, especially in the championship fight, I can see the potential of Mercedes tripping over themselves, which, you know, if you're using Red Bull as an example, Sergio, as much as I like him, is not the level performance Max can deliver. And very, and very unlikely will be tripping over Max in race wins. But George and Lewis can easily trip each other in race wins like Lewis and Nico did. And that can give another championship to Max. So there's potentially all that potential to happen because I think George will be very close and if not a thorn in Lewis's side in, in race weekends. Yeah, very much so. And, um, you know, it was good to see Lewis in high spirits, obviously, you know, been told about the changes that the FIA were making was obviously a step in the right direction in, in his mind and also perhaps total Walsh and Mercedes as well. The one quote I think that stuck in my mind and I think will stick in a lot of people's minds from Lewis Hamilton when, talking about his uh, prospects for this season was if you think that what you saw at the end of last year was my best wait until you see this year I mean words are words but as an ultimatum or as a warning or a forecast to the rest of the field coming with the weight that it comes from from someone like Lewis Hamilton that is certainly a stern warning uh, to his competition Um, he does seem very driven perhaps as driven as ever to come back stronger than he has before Lee how confident are you that Lewis can back that ultimatum or that promise up oh I'm I'm pretty confident on that aspect that he can back that up I think it was Nico Rosberg that um, said it um, I think last year on one when he was punting for Sky on one of the race weekends is that Lewis has the tenacity that if he takes the punch and has a bad weekend you can come back stronger he had a massive punch last year and Lewis has the capacity and the capability to come back this year even stronger and he's logged that and come back you look at the step Lewis took losing 2016 and over into 2017 he took a massive step in performance because he learned from losing to Nico and that loss to Max last year will give him the drive and motivation and and to highlight what areas he could improve on and I fully expect Lewis to be the stronger he's ever been well, I certainly can't wait to see it. And, uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton's going to be going for title number eight. You can only wish him the best of luck. Um, but, you know, I think it's the competition that may need to be wished luck for this yes. season if Lewis yeah. is in that kind of mood. <laughs> and if the car proves to be as good as perhaps we expect it to be. But no, a very, very tidy looking package from Mercedes. And I don't think we could expect anything less from a team like that. Um, let's move on to the final team that uh, did their car launch officially. And that's Alpine with the new A522. Uh, the car launch that, that um, was it that yesterday it was. Um, yeah. I'm trying to get my notes right. So we're recording this on the uh, Tuesday on Monday. Alpine unveiled their car. This was a weird one as well, Lee, because it was a car launch without the official car, 
because it was being assembled for a filming day uh, that took place on Tuesday. And, of course, the first test at Barcelona. That isn't a test, but is a test anyway. Um, I've not really got a problem with that. Uh, you know, I think the car that we saw, even though it ended up being a show car, we saw two show cars, and we'll get into that in a moment. But um, the priority, obviously, has to be making sure the car is ready for the filming day, the shakedown, and eventually the first pre-season session, rather than just uh, a regular photo shoot or a show with uh, the watching world, I suppose. Um, but the one thing I did want to talk about was quite interesting was the two show cars that they had. They had one with the normal blue livery with the pink on it from BWT, the new title sponsors. But then they had another show car that was in complete uh, a complete pink livery that you'll see if you're watching on YouTube, for example, of what that's going to look like. I mean, the obvious comparison is daily. It's almost identical to a 2019 racing point. Yeah, I got to admit, out of the, the two liveries they revealed, one is for the Bahrain and Saudi Arabia Grand Prix, I believe, which is the pink one. Out of the two, I actually preferred the pink one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I do too, actually, yeah. Um, so that's a shame that it's only limited to two tracks, in my opinion. But it's nice how they blended in the BWT pink into their standard livery it's not we were obviously concerned or i say we it was more courtney was concerned about the, how the pink may affect that lovely alpine livery we had last year and i don't think it's hurt the livery at all it's complemented nicely what um the alpine livery and i i really like how that looks on their standard livery yeah it does look nice um it, it's certainly not as good as last year's one uh, with all due respect to BWT, um, I, I'm thinking about that pink car, Lee. I, I just I can't imagine a scenario where Crofty doesn't accidentally call it a racing point at some pink point. Panther. Yeah, I, I just got a funny feeling at some point it's going to happen, uh, or yeah. the Pink Panther comment. He's just going to do it from force of habit just by seeing it. Um, Esteban Ocon will feel quite at home in a pink car because obviously he drove the pink racing point for a few years in 2017 and 2018. So uh, that will be fun to get, and yeah, that will be fun to keep an eye out on. It's, it's an interesting one with Alpine because, um, you know, there's a lot of changes to this car. And um, I think that, you know, the technical director, Matt Harmon, uh, he described the car as a starting point for the design work with a big push on tightening the package to create error opportunities. And there was a lot of focus on that with this car that we could see. Um, Renault, the engine suppliers uh, that work with Alpine, they claim that the, as a result of these changes, the cooling system of the 2022 power unit spec is 15% smaller than last year's. Um, and, and that kind of explains the thinner airbox intake and the engine cover than the big chunky one that we had in 2021, if you remember that one, Lee. So uh, yeah. certainly a step in the right direction in terms of improving the packaging um, in this Alpine car. And it does look like a tidy-looking car. It must be said, based on the renders that we did see, and we did get to see that were published on uh, on Alpine socials and on their website, so uh, what do you make of this car overall? Do you feel that this is a good-looking package? Can you see anything in particular that sort of stands out to you as a potential silver bullet or any areas of concern? Well, on the render, I didn't see any silver bullets, but it definitely is a nice-looking car. As I said, I did like the pink one over the their standard livery. Um, yeah, but it, it does look good overall. Obviously, we have mentioned in previous episodes regarding the the rumours regarding Renault's performance and the engine gains they may have may not have made and the reliability concerns. So I really hope 
that those concerns aren't a concern, <laughs> and it, they can um, it can drive Fernando forward in in El Plan because I really like to see that El Plan uh, have a good shot at being um, successful. Um, yeah, so I really hope that the, the car that Fernando at least has the opportunity that we don't see see him walking away at the end of the year. Yeah, a lot of pressure to deliver on El Plan. Um, that's certainly going to be a focal point this season. Fernando himself, he you know. Uh, at the launch, um, despite the fact that he looked like he was sweating a lot under the lights. Uh, maybe it was just me that noticed that. But um, he seemed raring to go. He seemed eager to go. We got to hear from Oscar Piastri as well, the reserve driver, um, to talk about the work he's going to be doing in the sim and obviously being able to step in, which was, uh, yeah, quite nice. Although I'd much rather see Oscar Piastri getting ready for the season and hopefully be on the grid. But maybe 2023, we might be able to see that as well. Um Esteban Ocon looked in fine spirits, um, you know, reminiscent on his victory from last season. I don't think Alpine are expecting too many chances to repeat that in 2022. Uh, Lauren Rossi, the Alpine car CEO, obviously by extension running the F1 team, he has set them a modest target of finishing fifth in 2022. Now, bear in mind that we're talking about an outfit that since 2017 have finished fourth, fifth and sixth in that sort of ballpark. So he's not really trying to push too high compared to some of the other teams that are obviously looking at this as an opportunity to move forward up to that next level. Um, despite the fact that they won a race last season at Hungary with Esteban Ocon, um, it, it has been a tough winter for Alpine. So I've, perhaps that's the sort of caveat that he's kind of looking at it with, um, thinking that, you know, if it was an ideal situation, an ideal winter break, an ideal winter period with the car, perhaps we'd be looking at trying to target the top three, maybe or be in a championship position. But Alpine seem quite reserved on this one. You know, they've had Otmar Zafner come in as the new team principal who said himself he wanted to win some races, um, you know, beat the competition and the Aston Martins as well. Uh, you know, a, a mention to his old team after leaving them under undesirable circumstances. But um, it's it's a very strange one with Alpine. Um, I mean, how do you see this going for them, Lee? What what area do you think they need to really improve on with this team and with this car? Um. Right, firstly, before I get into where they need to improve on, we finally got them to confirm Otmar after we've mentioned it for weeks. It finally, it's finally come out that he's now the, the new team principal for Alpine because he, he was revealed at the, the unveiling as the new team principal. So we were right, Adam. We, we, we got there. Um, regarding yeah, Otmar's we, it move. took a while. We kept saying it was going to happen. Um, I think it was like the, one of the worst kept secrets in F1. Yeah. And then eventually it did. So, uh, yeah, no, good to finally get closure on that one. Yeah. Um, but in regards to your question and what they can uh, approve on, um, is there, it's going to be Alpine's consistency. There were times last year that Alpine had probably not the third fastest, but they were up there for in the third, fourth, fastest car on certain tracks and then they'll fall away of the weekend or they'll be up there in the third full fastest car one weekend and then they're down in the sixth fastest car and it was really up and down for them throughout the season and that's just not how L plan's going to work it needs to be consistent performance across race weekends throughout the race weekends and that's where they need to get to, to improve on um, their car yeah, it's it's certainly something they have to look into. I mean, Lauren Rossi himself has, you know, he has, what, as he calls it, a 100 race plan to win the title in 2024. 
and that's currently underway at the moment. He's looked at loads of facets within this Alpine Renault unit. Um, and, and overall, his opinion of it has been that it's been too conservative. You know, there's been such a merry-go-round for this change in management structure. I mean, Marcin Bukowski, the former technical director and effective team principal at the time, has been moved on. Alain Prost has been moved on from his non-executive director's role at the team. Davide Brivio, after a successful period in MotoGP with the uh, Yamaha outfit, uh, I believe it was, he's been moved on to uh, a new role at Alpine, which is basically, I think I remember rightly, it's called the Director of Racing Expansion Projects. And I didn't understand what that meant and what that involved the Formula One team with. And he basically, he basically means that, according to Alpine, they say that it's fostering the team spirit in all racing categories, identifying, developing and bringing life projects around new opportunities for Alpine within the world of motorsport. In other words, nothing to do with the current operations of the Formula One team. It seems to be something beyond that entirely as part of the Alpine project as a whole in motorsport. So we can't really count on much of that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't really sound that he's going to be involved much with it, uh, sound like he's going to be involved much with the F1 team. So for me, I kind of look at this Renault outfit right now that has been hindered by, you know, past failings and issues in the past that, you know, they're struggling to overcome with this management structure that seems to be changing all the time. They do need to have a clear direction going forward. And I, I suppose, in a way, Lauren Rossi is right with Alpine and Renault before that, that they have been too conservative and they need to start being a bit more bolder to beat their competition. Um, they've got a good driver pairing. I don't think there's going to be any issues with that going forward this season. Of course, their future's in good hands with Oscar Piastri for as long as they're able to retain him. So I would like to see Alpine be a bit more daring. I would like them to see, see them take more risks on certain things, be a bit more creative, um, you know, that they were able to capitalise on big opportunities last season, which effectively is what got them into fifth in the constructors last year, ahead of an AlphaTauri unit who were had a much better car, but they just weren't able to, you know, use it and take advantage of it in the way that Alpine took advantage of theirs. So I'm feeling a little bit more optimistic about them, but I would say that the targets are probably about right for now but they do need to be a bit more ambitious going forward. And hopefully uh, that's what Lauren Rossi is setting them on in terms of their path. Yeah, no, I can, I do agree with your sentiment there. Adam. I mean, was there anything you wanted to add on Alpine before we sign off? Uh, overall is just come on El plan. It's just, <laughs> I just really want to see Fernando up there. He, he doesn't deserve to languish around in the back of the grid or the midfield. He really want, I really want him up. The yeah. front end of the grid, yeah, fighting with yeah, Max, yeah. fighting with Lewis, mm. fighting with um, the Ferraris, fighting with Sebastian. Even just one, yeah, when that nice chocker field where the the big names are at the front. Absolutely, definitely uh, right. Yeah, I really hope that Alpine kind of has delivered that on that potential. I certainly hope so. And uh, I hope you guys agree. Um, but let us know what your opinions are below. Which cars do you like the look of? Now that we've seen practically all of the cars, with the exception of Alfa Romeo's car, which will be unveiled on the Sunday, um, let us know which car you like the most. Which one don't you like the look of? Um, how you think the teams are going to get on this season, each one respectively. And uh, of course... If you haven't already, please do consider subscribing to the podcast if you are following us on YouTube. If you're following us on your favourite podcasting platform as well, don't forget to give us a like and follow us. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please do feel free to give us a review. If you think we are worthy of five stars, please do consider doing that. 
we will repay that kindness by reading out the five-star reviews on the show for future episodes. So if you are an Apple Podcast listener and you think we're worthy of that, please do let us know. We'd be very, very grateful for that as well. But that's the final of the launch reviews, guys. And uh, as you can tell, I imagine it's probably quite a tolling task for a lot of people to do this as we've rushed through all of the teams in two episodes uh, compared to what we did last year, which was go through each team in their own episode. We'll probably return to that in future seasons, given that uh, you guys seem to enjoy that a little bit more than this this particular example. But uh, we'll digress on that one at another time. In the meantime, guys, we've been DNF1, so thank you so much for tuning in. Stay safe. We'll see you in the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Take care. Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.